you know, we've all heard the death by a thousand cuts kind of, you know, and, and I think our public lands are experiencing that in some ways. But I also think, uh, you know, that that a thousand good actions, even if they're small, can really add up to some really beneficial action overall. And so um, I think even if it seems small and insignificant, pull those weeds, you know, give five dollars to that trail organization or that whatever organization, you know, spend a day working on trails or whatever it might be. And uh, all that adds up and, and it benefits us all. Hi, everyone. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Jeremy. Authors of Where Should We Camp Next, a 50-state guide to amazing campgrounds and other unique outdoor accommodations. Almost 12 years ago, we bought a pop-up camper that changed our lives and introduced us to the joys of RV travel. Join us now as we talk about where to camp, what gear to bring, and the best food to cook. We will also keep you dialed in to the latest RV innovations from people in the know. So pull up a chair and join us around the digital campfire. This is the RV Atlas. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of the RV Atlas. Today, I could not be more excited to have on the show Greg M. Peters. He's the author of a new book called Our National Forest, Stories from America's Most Important Public Lands. It's a book that I'm reading right now, and uh, after I got about 100 pages into it, I said, I've got to have this guy onto the podcast. So I reached out and I asked him if he would come on and do an episode about building a National Forest Service bucket list. Because I think that so many of us have National Park Service bucket lists and that we often overlook the beautiful national forests in our country. So Greg totally agreed to came on, but he said, hey, can we also talk about camping responsibly on public lands, on National Forest Service land, on BLM land, et cetera, et cetera. And that is something that has been on my mind a lot recently. So I said, absolutely, let's do that as a topic. And then eventually we decided that we would do two episodes together and that he would all also do the episode on building a National Forest Service bucket list. And this episode is also released in conjunction with National Forest Week. It's a week set up to celebrate our national forests and to recognize the beauty and wonder of our national forests. So this is a just a terrific interview with Greg about everything you need to know to camp responsibly on our public lands, whether that's at a more traditional developed campground or if you are dispersed camping. Uh, there's a a lot of things you need to know before you go. A little bit of education will go a long way. And it is quite a bit different than camping at private campgrounds like KOAs or Jellystones or family-owned campgrounds. It's enjoyable. It is fun. It's something that we all have access to, but we all should learn a little bit before we do it. And that is the point and purpose of today's episode. So we're going to dive in and have an amazing conversation with Greg that you are going to love. It is such great content. But before we do that, we have a sponsored message from our friends at RV SnapPad. Meet the world's only permanent jack pad. RV snap pads attach permanently to your RV leveling jack so you don't have to carry around blocks of wood or plastic blocks to level your towable or motorized RV. Simply snap them on one at a time and you are all set. RV snap pads go on in seconds and provide a lifetime of stability on the road. They are built for wanderers, adventurers, and vacationers just like you. We added RV snap pads to our travel trailer two years ago and love their durability, design, and functionality. They also make setting up and breaking down camp faster and easier. Head over to rvsnappad.com and use their Submit Your Rig tab to answer a few quick questions and they will find you the perfect set of snap pads for your towable or motorized RV. You can purchase RV snap pads directly from their website or use their where to buy tab to find a dealer near you. Join the RV snap pad revolution today. To find out more, visit rvsnappad.com. Hello, Greg and Peters, and welcome to the RV Atlas. I'm so excited to have you and I'm so excited to learn from you today. How are you doing, Greg? I'm doing great, Jeremy. Thanks. I'm excited to be here and to get a chance to chat with you. Yeah. I mean, you have this fascinating career in the outdoor industry and you haven't been on the podcast before. So tell us a little bit about your professional background, particularly when it comes to your work um, with the national forests and public lands, which is going to be our topic today. 
Sure. Um, yeah, so I've been a lifelong kind of uh, camper and, and, and outdoors person. I grew up in Maine, um, and my folks took us all camping uh, starting at a really young age. One of my first first memories, actually, is doing a canoe trip down the Saco River um, in Maine when I was about three or so, I think. So um, had a really kind of you know early start in, in camping and just have, have carried that through my whole life. Um, and then as an adult in, um, I think it was 2008, I was really fortunate to uh, to be able to get a job at the National Forest Foundation, which is a conservation nonprofit um, that works with the Forest Service, uh, which which is the federal agency that manages national forests. And um, the NFF raises funds and engages Americans in uh, the stewardship and enjoyment of the national forest system. And so I started there in 2008, uh, managing their tree planting program, um, and then ended up uh, becoming the director of communication. Uh, for the last, I think, five years or so that I worked there. Um, and then uh, in 2018, I, uh, I moved on from the NFF and started um, more of a freelance writing career and uh, have been able to, to do some writing and, uh, and publish a couple books and, and uh, some magazine stories and stuff like that. And it's just been fantastic. So um, really fortunate to have learned a lot about national forests in my time at the NFF and uh, to have been able to learn even more uh, um, after after I left there and, and started really diving into doing some of the research for for the book that I wrote. And the book is beautiful. It's Our National Forest, Stories from America's Most Important Public Lands. And I wanted to ask you about the title uh, before we get to dive too much into kind of the tips about camping responsibly on public lands. Uh, I love the subtitle because it, it has a real perspective. And I feel like there's some, some words in between the lines there. So the subtitle, Stories from America's Most Important Public Lands, um, when I read that subtitle, I think, oh, you know, the National Forest Service often feels like it plays second fiddle to the National Park Service. And it feels like you have a perspective on that there. So why are the National Forests our most important public lands? Um, yeah, it's interesting you ask that. That that question actually has come up um, fairly often in some of the interviews I've done about the book. People are really curious about that subtitle in particular. And to be completely honest, um, that was something that the publishers came up with. Um, so I actually didn't come up with that myself. But um, I was really supportive of it, um, aside from it being a bit of a mouthful. Um, and <laughs> the reason why is I think Unlike national parks, and, and we could spend an entire podcast talking about the difference between, you know, national parks and national forests and, and other federally, you know, designated public lands, but particularly unlike national parks, our national forests are managed for a whole bunch of different uses and and from timber harvesting to recreation, from mineral, you know, mining and grazing to water provision. And National parks are managed primarily for preservation of scenic values, recreation opportunities, and wildlife habitat and wildlife populations. So I think that the way we manage our national forests, the way we have managed them in the past, and the way we're going to manage them in the future is really reflective of our values as a society. What do we value more? Do we value natural resource extraction and the jobs from the timber industry and the mining and the grazing, all of which are important? Or do we value the preservation of natural resources, wildlife habitat, clean water, recreational opportunities? And I think because the national forests are managed in the way that they are, rules created by Congress that the Forest Service has to follow when they manage these lands, it's really, like I said, reflective of our values as a country. And so I think when you look at it in that lens, they really do become really important in that they, I think, articulate through practice uh, how we approach public lands, how we approach natural resources as a country. Yeah, that's such a terrific answer. And I, I, I think that they do get underrated in the recreation department um, because all those other things are happening. And a lot of people just, just think of them as these huge, gigantic forests that aren't as beautiful as the national parks. But a lot of these national forests are right around our national parks. And you could kind of drive from one to the other and not even know unless you're seeing the sign. I mean, they are beautiful places for recreation as well, correct? 
Oh, absolutely. You're yeah, a hundred percent. And I think um, you, you definitely spoke to something that I that I talk about in the book a fair bit, um, and that's how many of our national parks are either you know completely surrounded by or at least bordered by national forests, and and that's particularly true in the West, um, where just generally the bulk of public lands are. Um, but it's it's really interesting that. Um, so many of our parks are really bordered by these forests, which works both from a scenic values standpoint and also from a wildlife habitat standpoint, from an ecosystem services standpoint. You know, wildlife don't know when they step over Yellowstone National Park boundary into the Custer Gallatin National Forest, for example, they're just going to find winter range or they're going to find water or whatever it might be. Um, and so I think it's really important to recognize that all of these landscapes work together. Um, to support some of these amazing wildlife populations and to support some of these scenic values that we we often attribute exclusively to national parks, but I think um, are, are, if not equally, then dang close to equally distributed across the national forests. Um, and, you know, there really are just some absolutely stunning, you know, national park rivaling views and, and opportunities on the national forest system. Um, and you have maybe a fraction of the crowds, which is another kind of pretty neat, <laughs> neat aspect of the uh, national forest. You know, I've discovered over the years that a lot of times the best places to camp when you're visiting a national park are in the neighboring national forests, actually. Yeah, I think that's 100 percent, 100 percent accurate. Um, and, I, you know, I think people... Uh, you know, the, the national parks are America's crown jewel. They're, you know, they're they're internationally renowned areas. And so they bring in the visitors, you know, millions and millions of people. And national forests bring in millions of people. Some of them in particular, um, you know, bring in millions of people a year as well. Um, but the I would say the use is distributed um, throughout the season by and large. There aren't the masses coming in July and August, like there are to a Yellowstone or a Yosemite. Um, I think the, the, the use is distributed a little bit more because in part there are ski areas on national forests. Um, so there's a lot of winter recreation that happens, um, particularly on the Northern forests. Um, but yeah, the, the, the crowding issue is, is definitely less severe than on national, than in national parks. That doesn't mean there aren't areas that do get overcrowded on national forests for sure. Um, but, um, there it, it, it's not to the same degree. The other thing that I think is important to mention, Jeremy, if you let me just kind of keep rolling, uh, when I worked at the NFF, we, we, um, did a little research and discovered that. I think it was seven out of 10 Americans live within a hundred miles. So a couple hour drive of a national forest. So, you know, 70% of the country lives within a two hour drive of a national forest. I don't think that's the case for national parks. Um, I think, you know, they're a little harder to get to. There also can be, they also can be cost prohibitive for some people and national forests often don't have those same, uh, you know, gated uh, ticket fees to get in. The, you know, you have to pay for a campground and there are certain parking areas where you might have to pay, but there's no, you know, seven day pass that you need to buy or, or annual pass that you need to buy. Um, just to get in the doors of a national forest. I'm also wondering if the national forests are more integrated into the daily lives of the people that live around them and just less of uh, tourist destinations. I mean, when you're when you're in Yellowstone, you're hearing uh, people from all over the world are there. And when I think of national forests, I think uh, maybe a little bit more of people living locally and, and utilizing the land for recreation in a way that's that's part of their lives all the time. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Jeremy. And and so I live in Missoula, Montana. We're surrounded by national forests. Um, Glacier National Park, which is absolutely incredible, is two hours to the north. Yellowstone is about four hours to the southeast. And I only go to those two parks, you know, when family from out of town are visiting or, um, you know, if, if there's something very special going on, I'll go and brave the crowds and go into those parks. Otherwise, I'm recreating on the Lolo National Forest, the Bitterroot National Forest, um, and and we're recreating you know, in snow-capped, uh, among snow-capped mountains on beautiful rivers, you know, where our dogs can go and, and go off leash or, or, you know, on leash, depending where we are. It's just, it. you're absolutely right that, that these are kind of, I think, local secrets in a lot of ways. Um, and that's in part because they don't have the same recreational infrastructure that national parks have and 
and we can talk about this a little bit so later. It requires in, in this local podcast no- or follow-up one, but so it would require local knowledge in some cases to utilize some of that national forest land. Yeah, absolutely. And when we get into some of the kind of the tips um, for for what I would call responsible, you know, recreation, we'll we'll talk a little bit about that. And it's really part of actually part of the leave no trace um, set of principles as well. And and it's just that you know know before you go, do some research before you head out to any of these places, national parks, but particularly national forests, not just so that you don't get into trouble or or you know or cause a safety concern for yourself or others, but so that you can enhance your experience by knowing the lay of the land before you get there, by having you know some knowledge of the rules and regulations, what you can, what you can't do, where you can do it. Um, these are all really important things, not just to you know, to, to, um, improve your safety, but also to get the most out of your visit to these places. Cause vacation time is precious and weekends are precious. All right. Let's dive right into the, really the main topic here, which is tips for camping responsibly on public lands. You got to start it in that direction. Let's just keep going. But two, sure. th- two things first. Um, I do want our owners our not our owners, our listeners to know that you are an RV owner, right? I, just to be blunt, I don't want any of our RV owners thinking we've got a tent camping guy pre to them. I mean, you've you've done both and you do own an RV, right? Yep, absolutely. My wife and I have a, an older 2010 uh, RPOD 171, which we love and use um, pretty regularly. Um, and uh, we, we had a pop-up uh, uh, camper before that, a little pop-up tent camper. Um, I also do a lot of tent camping, um, particularly in areas that are a little more in the backcountry or in wilderness areas, which we can talk a little bit about. So I, I do both, but I would say um, probably uh, skew a little heavier to the to the RV uh, camping generally. So, yep, I'm I'm part of the crowd. All right. Awesome. So um, you got to start it already, but tell us more in terms of tips for camping responsibly on public lands. I mean, we, we want people to go out, whether it's in a tent or an RV, we want them to take care of the land and be respectful towards the land. You look at it as a privilege and not a right, as do I. So tell us what else we need to know to camp responsibly on public lands. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. And and please, you know, ask some follow up questions. Um, if I start, you know, rambling on a little too fast or, or speaking a little too quickly, I, I can tend to kind of just get caught up. Um, but, you know, I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, this is a privilege, n- not a right. And I think if we approach it that way, um, like we would approach any kind of privilege that we have, I think, you know, just some basic common sense and, and some basic kind of respect, um, you know, is, is is the right call and, and the right behaviors. And I think a lot of what I'm going to say is is really just couched under that. Be be respectful, use common sense and don't be a jerk. Um, and, you know, we'll get into some specifics of, of, you know, maybe things that people don't think about. I don't think people go out on, you know, national forests or any public lands with the intent of being a jerk. They just may not be aware that their behavior is impacting others in the way that it is. And, you know, for the most part, we're going out to these places to to get some peace and quiet, to get some, some you know, uh, beautiful views and, and, and to experience nature, not to experience somebody else's radio or, you know, um, you know, inappropriate ATV or OHV use, you know, those kinds of things, I think, um, often are, are some of the sources of, of some of that conflict when we get out on public lands. But, yeah, I think, um, you know, really learning about the places that you're going um, is is sort of first and foremost, I think, really important. And, and that, you know, covers everything from, you know, getting the right permits to go fishing or to to go, you know, mountain biking or ORVing, whatever it might be to, to hike a, a particularly popular trail or to, you know, go on a particular popular paddle, you might need a permit. So just have to get online and do some of that research before you get there. So you're not disappointed when you get there that it turns out, oh, this requires a permit or, oh, I can't do that here. And I brought all this gear to be able to do that. So spending some time up front and there's so many resources on the Internet. Every national forest uh, has its own Web page. Um, which has, you know, or not its own web page, its own website. Um, and there's tons of information on all of these kinds of things. Um, and so you can really, you know, dig in and learn. There are district ranger offices that you can call, talk to folks. So there's a lot of opportunity to learn. You just have to put the time in and the investment in, and it's going to bear dividends for you. You know, you're going to have a better time. Uh, you're going to, you know, be more aware of, of what's out there, what the opportunities are, how to do them appropriately. And that just makes for a more fun experience, in my opinion. You're making um, me kind of have to have this realization that like when we take our RVs to 
a KOA or some kind of private family-owned campground that we're going to show up and and they're going to take care of us, right? They're going to guide us to our site and they're going to give us maps and, you know, tell us where the pool is and tell us what activities they have. But when we show up to camp on public land, we have to take care of it, right? We have to take care of the land that we're, that we're camping on. So uh, everything you're saying, I just think is so to the point that you just have to do more research before you go, because each place is so different and there's not somebody there to provide customer service for you. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. You know, there may be a camp host at many of the National Forest campgrounds that folks would go to, but there might not be a camp host at many of those. They may, you know, have their gone for the day sign hung up and they may not be there to answer your questions. So you're absolutely right. You know, there may be running water and flush toilets at some of these, but likely there isn't. So, you know, you just have to be really aware of um, exactly of, of, of sort of what you're getting into when you show up at these places. There's probably not electricity. There's probably not a drain for, you know, your septic tank. Um, so you just really need to, to do that research up front. And I think that's not just for the amenities at the campground or necessarily the recreational opportunities that exist in that area. Um, but also I would say, you know, weather related. Um, and then, you know, I think it's really important that we all also acknowledge that this land hasn't belonged to Americans for, for a millennia. It's belonged to other people and learning a little bit about who went there, who was there before we were, or we are, I think is another really important thing to consider. And you don't have to, you know, read a book necessarily on Native American cultures in that area that you're visiting, but a couple, you know, Wikipedia pages or, 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 you know, just a a good internet site or two. And it's going to, again, enrich your experience. You're, you're going to realize the vast, you know, tradition of human history that exists in these places. And I think that's a wonderful thing. I think that just absolutely enriches our experience out there and gives us more respect for the landscape and, and the people who came before. So it really runs the gamut when I talk about sort of, you know, learn about where you're going it's everything from, like we said, from, you know, the regulations to um, to the cultures that, that were there before to, you know, what kind of recreational opportunities might be nearby. And with the Internet and and with a couple of phone calls, this information is not hard to come by. You just have to put the effort in to find it. I love the fact that um, when you, you know, whether you're doing dispersed camping in a national forest or camping in a national forest campground that, you know, I've been plowing through a lot of national forest uh, websites, uh, pages lately. I love the fact that they like have phone numbers and they're like, call us to get information. It's it's just kind of old fashioned in this way that is 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 quite refreshing. So big lessons here. Be respectful to the land. Uh, be respectful to the history of the land. That all circles back to the fact that this is a privilege and not a right. But also, uh, you know, show respect for the, the camp hosts and any staff that that are there or any officials that are there maintaining this land for us to use, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's something that I, admittedly in the past, my wife and I have tried to, you know, maybe maybe sneak by and not pay the $10 camp fee because we got there late or, you know, we're going to get up and leave early. And, you know, I regret those decisions. And, and I wish that I hadn't tried to do that because it's really awkward when the camp host or the, the law enforcement officer comes up and says, hey, did you pay your camping fee? Um, and you sort of ashamedly say, no, I have not yet paid my camping fee. It's 10 bucks. It's 12 bucks. And, you know, again, this ties in a little bit to being prepared, you know, don't show up to a public or to a national forest campground with a hundred dollar bill and expect somebody to be able to give you change for the $12 a night camping fee. That's not going to happen. You're going to need to show up there with the right money um, to pay that fee. You're going to want to pay that fee promptly. You're going to want to be respectful to the rangers, to the camp hosts, and obviously to other campers. So you kind of nailed it on the head. I don't think we need to get too, too, you know, in depth in that. Um, But it's just paramount to be respectful to, to other people and certainly to the forest service staff who, have a, a tough job and are just, you know, doing their job and doing the best at it that they can. Well, you made a confession, so I'll make one too. One of the <laughs> most embarrassing moments in in my life, uh, I was camping with about 10 of my teenaged friends, maybe a couple of them were, were 20 at the oldest, in Cape Hatteras National Seashore, and it was quite windy, and we had gone surfing, and we came back to our site, and our, a lot of our stuff had sort of blown all over the place, and the ranger, a ranger came up to us and said, you have an hour to clean your site or you have to leave. And 
uh, she was 1000 percent in the in the right i mean she probably could have kicked us out right then i was mortified and uh, it kind of changed the trajectory of how i thought about camping responsibly right um of, of course we needed to clean up our site so anyway since you made a confession i'll make a confession too so we're, <laughs> we're going to come back in a second and we've got more to talk about when it comes to camping responsibly on public lands we're here with greg m peters the author of our national forests stories from america's most important public lands uh, but before we come back we we have sponsored messages from our friends at Thetford and from our friends at Neighbor. From a humble beginning in the garage of Frank Sargent near Flint, Michigan, Thetford has become a leading manufacturer of toilets and sanitation solutions for the RV, marine, and camping markets. Thetford makes going places easy, and they've been serving RV owners with great products since 1963. We've been using Thetford's holding tank treatments for over 12 years, and we never get the bad odors that some RVers complain about. Aquamax is Thetford's newest holding tank treatment. Its special blend of power enzymes and beneficial probiotics quickly eliminate odor, digest waste, and dissolve toilet paper. It is also formaldehyde and bronopal free, making it campground and marine friendly. It can be used in building tank systems and portable and recirculating toilets. Proudly made in the USA, Thetford's new family of Aquamax holding tank treatments have been extensively researched and tested safe for all RV and marine toilets, holding tanks, and septic systems. Aquamax is available in two fragrances, Summer Cypress and Spring Showers. And Aquamax also comes in a variety of sizes and formulations, liquid, dry packs, and toss-ins. So stock up today. To find out more about Aquamax and Thetford's complete lineup of products, head on over to thetford.com. Is your driveway too small for the RV of your dreams? Does your homeowners association not allow you to park your RV on your own property? Are you worried about paying top dollar to leave your RV at a sketchy storage facility? When it comes to finding safe and affordable RV storage, are you feeling totally stuck? Then maybe it's time you gave Neighbor a try. Neighbor.com forward slash RV Atlas can help you find safe, closer, more convenient storage right in your own neighborhood. Stay tuned for a special offer just for our listeners. Neighbor connects you and your neighbors so that you can find affordable RV storage close to your home. You help them earn extra cash while they keep your RV safe at their home. When I use Neighbor to search for storage options near my house, I was surprised to find dozens of affordable options. Neighbor also offers a wide variety of plans so you can choose the right protection that best suits your needs. You'll be able to quickly and easily add a property protection plan while placing a storage reservation. Give your RV a home, not a storage space. Visit neighbor.com forward slash RV Atlas for 50% off your first month of storage with neighbor. That's neighbor.com forward slash RV Atlas for 50% off your first month of RV storage. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We are here with Greg M. Peters, the author of the new book, Our National Forests, Stories from America's Most Important Public Lands. And we are talking about tips for camping responsibly on those public lands. And we've got a lot more great content here. So, Greg, let's talk about campfires, because this is, again, an area where you need to know the, the specific rules uh, where you're going. And those rules can change based on weather conditions, et cetera, et cetera. So don't assume you can show up and, and have have a campfire, right? Oh, a hundred percent. I'm so glad you said that, Jeremy. Um, I didn't actually include that in my in my notes preparing for this, but you're absolutely right. Like particularly in the West and particularly in the last few years, I think, you know, you'd have to be living under a rock to not have heard about some of the intense wildfires that have been happening out West. Um, and, you know, the national forest and the for, the national forest system, the, the U.S. Forest Service, they are going to shut down uh, campfires for sure when things get dry and hot later in the summer. And you just have to be prepared to, you know, not have to cook on a campfire, for example, to have a, a stove with an on off switch um, to not rely on an alcohol stove that might get tipped over um, something like that that could cause a fire um, in addition to just sort of other responsible campfire use when you can have one um, it's really really important to to research the regulations that are current in the place where you're going so you're aware of whether or not you can have a campfire um, and those types of things before you go there and, and end up disappointed or unable to cook your dinner for whatever reason and again those things are not our 
rights, right? You, know, no. you don't have the I think a lot of Americans have that attitude. It is my right to have a campfire anywhere I want to have one. Well, no, it's not. If conditions are very, very dry, it's, it's incredibly, incredibly dangerous. And you need to trust the expertise of the, of the rangers in the National Forest Service or the people that make those decisions, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. It's not your right to burn down a million acres of forest or to burn down somebody's house or, or outbuildings or, you know, cause tens of millions of dollars in firefighting costs. And that happens. You know, the, there's a common statistic. I, I'm I, I'm going to I'm going to quote it here, you know, something like nine out of 10 fires that occur in public lands are caused by humans. Um, and so, you know, we are a huge part of the reason that there are forest fires. And a big part of that is that people have fires when they shouldn't, when the regulations um, are dictating that they shouldn't, or they have them in the wrong place at the wrong time, even if the regulations do allow them. And most importantly, and I think this is the the biggest tip that I want to talk about when <clears throat> When talking about fire, people don't extinguish their fires, and that's huge. If you don't, if you don't have a bucket of water next to your fire, you are not having a responsible fire. That's just, it's just as simple as it can be. You have to have water ready to extinguish that fire. And you have to put that fire out at night, even if you're going to get up in the morning. And you do that by dousing it with water, stirring it with a stick, feeling it, making sure there's no embers, dousing it again, stirring it again, and then that should really put it out. The next morning, just get a little more kindling, get some more paper, start another fire in the morning if you want to. And then when you go for a hike in the afternoon, put that fire out again. I can't emphasize how important that is. We've all been in situations where the wind kicks up suddenly when we're out on a hike or we're out riding bikes or OHVs and we come back and if there was an ember or embers in that fire and the wind kicked up, they can that can start another blaze, particularly if there's still some firewood left over from from your fire the night before. And that blaze, those those sparks can fly out if there's wind and they can start the ground on fire. And you might not even notice. It might be a, a smoldering fire in the in the litter and the duff on the ground, you know, yards away from your fire. You might not notice it. Leave the next morning and all of a sudden there's a forest fire going on. So it's just it's just kind of 101 of fire safety is making sure that your fire is out before you leave the campsite anytime overnight and then when you leave in the afternoon or, or midday to go on your adventure. I couldn't agree more. And when we first started camping as a family about 12 years ago, I, I didn't really grow up camping. And when we first started camping, I oftentimes thought my fire was extinguished. And then I'd, you know, go back into the pop-up camper and wash some dishes or whatever, get ready for bed. And then I'd look out the window and there it was. Like it come like it leaps back to life with a little <laughs> yeah. bit of wind. And so really water's the the only way to do it. How about um transporting firewood. Yeah, that's another big one. Um, and, and there are actually national campaigns um, around this issue. So, you know, people may not think much about, you know, grabbing some firewood, driving a few states over to go, you know, for a long weekend or a week. The problem with that is you can transport pests, invasive species. The emerald ash borer is a really good example of a pest that gets transported with firewood. And then that can cause an outbreak of that pest uh, in somewhere else where it doesn't exist. So um, really technically, uh, the Officials don't want you transporting firewood across county lines, never mind state lines. Um, and most of the time in the rural communities or, or even some, you know, the bigger communities that are outside of these national forests or these national parks, there's going to be opportunities to buy locally sourced firewood at gas stations, at, you know, homes on the side of the road. Um, and oftentimes, particularly at some of the larger campgrounds, and again, do your research up front, there will be a camp post and there'll be firewood uh, purchasing opportunities there. Um, so it's pretty straightforward. You know, make sure your fire is out with water every time you have a fire and don't transport firewood, you know, really beyond county lines, but certainly beyond state lines. And, and you might be paying more buying a stack of firewood outside of a campground somewhere, but you're also injecting money into the those economies, which you're, you know, you're visiting those areas. Uh, and again, uh, it is not every American's right to stick a cord of firewood in the back of their pickup truck and, and take it wherever they want to take it. It's just common sense that that can be a problem. So for a lot of our RV owners listening uh, use generators um, when they're camping in national forest campgrounds uh, because there's no electric hookups in, in the vast majority of them. So what do we need to know about that? 
You know, I think just a little bit of common sense and common courtesy is really all, all that folks need to know. I mean, I, I would guess if you ask most of the listeners, you know, listening right now, they don't go out to go camping to listen to a generator. I certainly don't. I go out to listen to birds and rivers and, you know, the wind in the leaves. It's not to listen to somebody's generator. If somebody needs to run a generator and they do it during the day, that's perfectly appropriate. I have no problem with that. But overnight generator use, I think, is inappropriate. Late night generator use, I think, is inappropriate. Every every campground I've ever been to in any public land, state park, national forest, national park, they all have quiet hours, typically from around 10 at night until 6 a.m., sometimes at 7 a.m. Generator use is prohibited during those times. Now, in almost every campground I've ever been to, somebody's running a generator after 10 p.m. or somebody's getting up really early and firing up their generator. It's just rude. I mean, I you know, not to be too blunt about it, but it really well, is it's just rude. rude. And it's taking advantage of the fact that these National Forest Service and other public campgrounds are understaffed and that there's no there's possibly just no one to come enforce the rule. And I think that every RV owner out there listening needs to know that this causes a lot of tension between tent campers and RV owners. Absolutely. And it's it's possibly the top reasons that a lot of tent campers resent RV owners. And I think that RV owners do need to remember that we are sharing these campgrounds with tent campers who have uh, you know thin thin canvas tents here. Uh, and they can it's very loud for them. They're not in an RV in, in you know in, in a hard walled RV that it's going to dull the noise with an air conditioner blasting as well. Right. Yeah. No, 100%. And again, you know, we started out talking a little bit about my outdoor, you know, experiences. One of the reasons I love going camping in a tent is it gets me away from some of these developed campgrounds where there are and often are generator use. Um, and, you know, I think it's also another reason maybe why even RV folks like to go to developed, you know, private campgrounds like the KOAs that you mentioned, they have plugins there, so you don't need to run a generator. But when you get out in the woods, um, a lot of folks do want to run a generator to power, you know, again, air conditioning, whatever it is. And it's just, unfortunately, at night, it's just, it, it, it ruins the experience for everybody else. And and I think nobody wants to be in a position where they're ruining someone else's experience. And, and hopefully it will naturally change as solar technology becomes more affordable and more people are able to even run their air conditioning off their solar, et cetera, et cetera. So let's, let's kind of pivot into dispersed camping because we've been kind of focusing on like campground camping to some degree. But in our public lands, whether it's BLM or National Forest Service, there are kind of uh, traditional developed campgrounds, as they're called. But there's also lots of options for dispersed camping, uh, which is this is this kind of whole other category that requires a whole other uh, a list of things to prepare for. So what are some things we need to know about uh, camping responsibly in a dispersed fashion? Sure. And, and dispersed camping is also referred to as boondocking um, or, you know, off off grid camping. Uh, I think dispersed camping is a is generally a, a forest service and maybe a BLM term. Um, and as you said, and, and as folks probably understand, it is camping somewhere that's allowed that is outside of a developed campground. So you're driving down a forest service road and um, there's a little spur road or, or there's a little track that goes off to the right. And uh, you're aware that dispersed camping is allowed there. And you can take that track and you can set up your camp, um, you know, away from a campground, which is awesome. I mean, what a cool opportunity. It's free. Um, and, you know, it's just absolutely one of my favorite things to do. Um, but as you said, I think it comes with even a, a heightened, um, uh, you know, it, it, it increases the responsibility for, for people who are doing that because you're not in an area where somebody is going to come, you know, come tell you the rules and, and make sure you're following them. So some things to keep in mind. Um, really important, I think, is to camp at existing sites and within areas that have already been impacted. So you're driving down that forest service road, you see a beautiful meadow over there on the right, and there's a creek running, you know, 100 yards past. Driving through that meadow to go camp there is not an appropriate way to go dispersed camping. Find an area where somebody or hopefully some people have already set up a campsite where there's already a fire ring, where the ground is already impacted, and use that to camp. Don't create new sites, even if you're desperate for one. Um, it's just, it, we don't, 
we don't have enough land out there, though this may seem like there is when you're out there. We don't really have enough land for everybody to be going off and driving on, you know, across beautiful meadows and, and, you know, creeks and whatnot to go create their own dispersed camping site. I think this is one of the biggest things that people misunderstand about dispersed camping, uh, because we think that dispersed camping means park your rig, pitch your tent anywhere you want, and that there's no sites. But ironically, there are actually sites in a lot of dispersed camping locations that have been used before, or just the natural landscape makes a certain area more amenable to having an RV parked there than, like you said, oh, the meadow and the and the beautiful creek. And if this sounds overwhelming to anyone that wants to try it, again, pick up the phone and you can actually call the local field offices and get really, really spe- specific directions, right, about where you are allowed to camp in a dispersed fashion. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yes. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. The the Forest Service likes being able to provide this opportunity to people and they're going to be, they would much rather have a short conversation with you that, you know, gives you some, some tips and and some insider info on where to go than have you drive in willy nilly across the forest to to try to create your own dispersed camping site. So a hundred percent, give them a call, ask them. There are other um, websites out there. I think freecamping.net or something like that is one. Um, And there are, you know, user reviews and photos and people say, oh, I drove my my, you know, such and such camper, you know, into this spot and it was no problem or wow, you really need four wheel drive to get into this one. I wouldn't go there with a, you know, with a camper. Um, and so again, the internet is a great resource for information on all this kind of stuff. That being said, uh, don't trust the internet all the time. I would still definitely make that phone call and make sure that, you know, something hasn't changed, that uh, the road is still in, in good enough condition, et cetera. Now you have a lot of other common sense uh, tips here, which sadly sure. people need to hear. Don't, don't, drain your gray water in the middle of public land, pack out your trash. Um, Also, you say to pay it forward. And what do you mean by that? Yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of times we we probably pulled into campgrounds or, or dispersed camping sites and there's trash in the firing. Somebody tried to burn a glass bottle or somebody tried to burn, you know, their beer cans or whatever. Um, One, don't do that. Two, clean that up clean up other people's trash. Um, I think, you know, little things like that, I think are really important. Don't build another fire ring if there's a fire ring that exists. Um, Or maybe don't even use a fire ring. My wife and I have started uh, bringing our solo stove, which we got primarily for backyard fires, but we've been throwing that in the truck and taking that to disperse campsites. And it's awesome. Our fire is contained. It's easy to put out. We put the water in there. It's easy to get going. It's perfect. So paying, there are other ways to pay it forward too. You know, you can volunteer, you can, um, you know, donate to, uh, particular groups that you might be, um, interested in, you know, the national forest foundation has a tree planting program, for example, um, where you can plant a tree for a dollar in areas that have been impacted by wildfire. Um, you can pull invasive weeds. It doesn't, it's not that hard to learn what some of the more common invasive weeds are in your area. You know, grab a trash bag, pull, spend five minutes, 10 minutes pulling invasive weeds. Um, And I think it really comes down to kind of being part of the solution and not part of the problem. Um, Again, it's that privilege versus right concept that we talked about. And it just, I, I, I believe this firmly, Jeremy, you know, we've all heard the death by a thousand cuts kind of, you know, and, and I think our public lands are experiencing that in some ways, but I also think, uh, you know, that, that a thousand good actions, even if they're small can really add up to some really beneficial action overall. And so, um, I think even if it seems small and insignificant, pull those weeds, you know, give $5 to that trail organization or that whatever organization, you know, spend a day working on trails or whatever it might be. And, uh, all that adds up and, and it benefits us all. And since it is a, um, privilege and not a right, we, we can lose it. And that's kind of yes. like the fear that lurks in the back of my mind, that if too many people are going out there, uh, trashing things, being irresponsible, God forbid, starting forest fires. There's just lots of, you're giving lots of uh, ammunition to people who might want to say, um, no, we're not going to, we're not going to allow this, or we're going to change legislation. We're going to change rules about uh, camping on our public land. And that would be such a horrible, horrible loss for so many Americans. So we're going to come back in a second. We have a little bit more with Greg M. Peters. He is the author of Our National Forests, Stories from America's Most Important Public Lands. And we're going to come back and wrap up the show. We have a couple more questions for him about ways to give back. But before we do so, we have a sponsored message from our friends at Camp Spot. 
Let's face it, summers weren't meant to be experienced sitting at a desk or staring at a computer screen. It's time to call time out. CampSpot is here to help. CampSpot is an instant booking platform for camping across North America featuring over 140,000 campsites. Research and book the best campgrounds, RV parks, cabins, glamping destinations, and more to find your time out. Whether it's your next epic adventure, girls' night out, or family reunion, CampSpot lets you filter your search results by the type of getaway you want. Browse by location, price point, site type, amenities, and more. CampSpot also offers premium inventory, real-time availability, and no membership fees so that you can find the best sites at the best campgrounds for the best prices. Picture it now. Fresh air in your lungs, cool breeze in your hair, warm hugs in your soul, and that grounded sense of self you'll only find when you spend time out. Book your spring and summer camping trips now. Find your time out. Find your CampSpot at CampSpot.com. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We are here again with Greg M. Peters, the author of the terrific new book, Our National Forests, Stories from America's Most Important Public Lands. And it is truly a beautiful hardcover book that's going to look great on your coffee table or on your bookshelf. It has lots and lots of pictures inside, and I've really, really been enjoying reading it. So, so Greg, this episode um, is coming out after the 4th of July. It was just the 4th of July recently. How about fireworks on uh, America's public lands? What are the, the rules there? Yeah, this one's pretty easy, actually. Um, fireworks are illegal on national forests and, and full stop. Um, and, you know, that's a bummer. I, you know, sparklers, I think, are one thing, but fireworks uh, are illegal. And, and um, I think there's really not a whole lot more to say. I think it's kind of hard to argue with that, too. I don't I don't <laughs> yeah. I don't see the d d defense of it. You know, you could go do it on a, you know, private property, I guess, if, if you want to. And again, the shame to me is I'm sure it happens a lot because there's not the staffing to these vast American public lands. Uh, there's not somebody there policing every acre of them. Right. No, I mean, the national forest system is 193 million acres big, right? So, and that spread over, you know, I think 43 or 40 states or something like that. There's just no way that, you know, any entity could police all of that. And they don't want to police all of that. The, the forest service is not the fun police. They're not the recreation police. They have to manage ecosystems, water, wood, all these different things. Recreation is just one of the things that they have to manage. And they don't want to be out there issuing citations because you thought it would be fun to shoot an M80 off in a dry forest uh, on the 4th of July. It, they're just fireworks are illegal. I, I get a little grumpy about this because because <laughs> I see them out there. And um, yeah, so I, I appreciate you giving me an opportunity to mention that um, and bring that up for sure. Thanks, Jeremy. Anything else about giving back if somebody wanted to donate time or, or money to uh, to contribute to our beautiful public lands in America. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think uh, my first tip is, is learn about these landscapes, you know, whether, uh, it's my book, which, which obviously I'd love for folks to, to check out. Um, or, you know, there's lots of other books about national forests, about the forest service. There's, you know, every, like I said, every, every forest has a webpage. Um, so learn about these places before you go out there, it's going to enrich your experience. And I think it's going to give you a little more appreciation and perspective for what these landscapes are. So I consider that a form of giving back. Um, I think there's so many different groups out there that that people can support with time or money or in-kind donations. Um, you know, I mentioned the National Forest Foundation. They're dear to my heart because I work there, but it's a great group. They work nationally. There are friends groups for local different national forests. There are trail groups. There are OHV groups. There are wildlife and sportsman groups like Trout Unlimited or Mule Deer Foundation or the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Um, you know, I think every every type of recreation, you know, paddling, f hiking, they all have, you know, groups that, that you can support that advocate for those things. So there's all of that that you can do. And then I think what, what really uh, circling back to the opening question you had about the title of the book, 
there's so much opportunity for public engagement in the management of our national forests that I think that's another really important point that that does tie into the giving back. You can comment on forest plans and and on specific projects. If somebody if the if the forest near you or a forest that you like to go is proposing a timber sale or proposing a new hiking trail or proposing a mountain bike route or whatever it might be, they're going to have to put that that plan out for public comment and you can engage and you can tell them what you think. And, and I think that's such an amazing opportunity and something that people really need to take advantage of. And I think that's a really important way of giving back. And you can find all that information on that particular forest's website. Give those rangers a call. Like we've talked about, they'll point you in the right direction. There's just, I mean, almost an unlimited number of ways to give back to these lands and to pay it forward a little bit. I recommend to people, too, to maybe sometimes connect with a national park or a national forest that, that means something to you personally. Like, I fell in love with the national parks at Acadia National Park, as did my wife Stephanie. And, and so we joined the Friends of Acadia, um, which is a nonprofit that, that does upkeep and trail building and things like that in Acadia National Park. So sometimes it's nice to personalize that donation to a park that you've been to or that you love going to. Greg, this was such a wonderful, wonderful conversation. And I really appreciate you uh, sharing your passion and your knowledge for our public lands. And I really hope that everybody uh, listening takes this to heart. It's really important to to camp responsibly on our public lands, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because we want our children to be able to enjoy them as well and future generations to be able to enjoy them. So Greg, where can we find your book? Where can we follow you, uh, et cetera, et cetera? Sure. Um, so, you know, the book hopefully is available in, in local bookstores. I, I always encourage folks to start there. If they don't have it in stock, ask them to order it. Um, it is available on, you know, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and uh, IndieBook.org and, and those online retailers. Um, so I, I really appreciate folks, you know, considering checking that out. Um, it's, as, as Jeremy mentioned, it's got, you know, 150, I think, photographs. Each chapter kind of exists on its own. Um, it's not something you have to read cover to cover. You can pick it up and, and read a chapter about wildfire um, or read a chapter about recreation um, on national forests and, and kind of put it down after that 10 or 15 minute read. Um, so I hope it's really digestible and informative for folks and that there are some stories in there that people are unaware of and, and it increases kind of both their awareness and appreciation of the national forest system, which which was my goal. Um, and then as far as me, I have a website, gregmpeters.com. Uh, it's got links to the book um, and some of my other writing. Um, yeah, and I'm on, you know, I'm on Instagram, Greg M. Peters. I'm on Facebook, all that, all that kind of social media stuff as well. Awesome. And we're going to have you back on, right? Because the initial idea, I had asked you to come on and do a show about sort of building a national forest bucket list because everybody has their national park bucket list. And I think that like nobody ever puts together a national forest service bucket list. And there's so many amazing places. And um, you said, oh, yeah, you were, you were like, you know, I'll totally talk about that. But can we also like talk about camping responsibly on America's public lands? And I was like, bingo, because that's actually really been on my mind lately. So we will definitely have you back. Uh, in the next couple of weeks as well. So everybody can look forward to that. And thank you so much for coming on the show, Greg and Peters. This was great. Oh, my pleasure, Jeremy. Thank you for for having me on, for letting me talk about this. I, I don't want to lecture. I don't want to scold. I just think a lot of folks, like I said at the top, you know, just are unaware that some of these behaviors might affect others or just unaware that that there are certain, you know, things that you that you do and don't want to do. And I really appreciate the opportunity to to share some of that from my experience and and uh, working at the National Forest Foundation and with the Forest Service and, and seeing some of the impacts of some of these things. So thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to the next conversation. Um, there's just so many gems out there on the National Forest System, and, and I look forward to highlighting some of those for the listeners. Awesome. Thank you so much, Greg. My pleasure. A big thank you for listening to this episode of the RV Atlas, and a big thank you to our sponsors, to Neighbor, The Thetford Corporation, Camp Spot, Yogi Bears Jellystone Park Camp Resorts, RV Snaphead, and Go RVing. To find out more about the topics discussed in this show, head on over to the RVAtlas.com. And to join the friendliest group of RVers, head on over to the RV Atlas group on Facebook. If you enjoyed this show, please consider leaving us a review over at iTunes. And we'll see you at the campground. <laughs>